Welcome to the Podglomerate. And so, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, I, I sort of showed up and said the what Rudyard Kipling would call the master words of the jungle, you know. The master words of the jungle in the jungle story was, we be of one blood. And that's kind of what I did. I showed up and, and talked to other nerds who like Buffy and Babylon 5. And, and they're like, yeah, okay, this guy, this guy belongs to the tribe. Somebody should, should look out for him. Welcome to Writers You Know Right. My name's Jeff. And I'm Kyle. And this week on the show, we have a cult classic. Uh, we have Jim Butcher, who is... Do you actually think that's his real name? I just thought about that. You know what? I don't know why it wouldn't be, because it seems like a very normal name. Yeah, it is, but it's also like Butcher, you know? Like, that just seems like something that, like, a fantasy author or a sci-fi author would name themselves. You see, based on what he talked about, though, with his uh, role-playing days, I feel like if he was going to come up with a name, it would have been more fantastic. I guess. I don't know. It's really interesting. Who is he? He is a fantasy slash... Uh, I don't really know. He, he's the author of The Dresden Files, first and foremost, and he's also written two other series. Uh, one is called The Codex Alera, and the other is called The Cinder Spires. Codex Alera, he wrapped up, and The Cinder Spires is ongoing, as are The Dresden Files. Yeah, and if anybody is not familiar, The Dresden Files is currently at like book 16 or something. Uh, it's going to be... 20 plus books it's about a wizard in uh chicago in present day chicago uh who is like a private investigator that you can hire on craigslist um he is a really really interesting guy he gets into it with us about like how he developed the story how he got into writing what he's up to today and the reason that he's on the show is because he has a new book out called brief cases which is a collection of short stories that have been published in anthologies all over the world about Harry Dresden. And this is kind of like the omnibus collection of all of those short stories so that fans of the Dresden Files can read them uh, all in one place. And the Dresden Files is kind of a big deal because, uh, you know, in addition to many other accolades, it was a TV show for one season on the Sci-Fi Channel a couple of years ago. Yeah, back in 2006, it did air for a single season, but he also hinted that there may be further developments on the TV show front, which I thought was pretty exciting because I feel like the time is now. Yeah, no, it'll be pretty cool. It, I mean, it's. do you remember the last time we had an author who like hadn't at least optioned something? Honestly, no. I think that's the way the world works now, though, is that when you have a, a relatively successful publication... It just makes sense to try and figure out whether or not it's worth it to make a TV show out of it. Yeah, it's crazy. But in any case, it was really fun having Jim on the show. He has a new fan in me. Uh, his writing is really fun, and I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah, and if you're at all a fan of, I guess they call it sword and horse fantasy, the Codex Alera, which I am now onto after the Dresden Files, is very, very enjoyable. So check it out. Yeah, let's get to it. My name is Jim Butcher. Uh, I'm an author of science fiction and fantasy. Um, uh, I'm best known for the series called The Dresden Files, uh, which is uh, basically Philip Marlowe meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, it was a television show on the Science Fiction Channel for like five minutes. Um, uh, um, but but I, I'm very fortunate that the show happened because even though it only ran for one season, it, it really garnered me a, a, a fairly large audience. I mean, it was a 
it was a it was a great advertisement. Uh, I write for nerds, and and my show was airing on Friday night at eight o'clock. And and who's watching sci-fi on Friday night at eight? It's nerds, it's my people. Uh, uh, so that's where you know that's that's sort of where I come from as a writer. Uh, um, uh, I, I I enjoy writing a lot of different uh, sorts of flavors of writing, but but it's the Dresden Files I'm best known for. What is the Dresden Files? The Dresden Files. Uh, follows the adventures of Harry Dresden, the only professional wizard in the sh- in the Chicago phone book. Uh, um, uh, one of the one of the great one of the great lines that the show came up with that I love is, is is when you need help when you need help you call the police when you need a miracle you call Harry Dresden. He's the sort of guy that you show up to when uh, when the real world just can't help you anymore. Um, he's also the guy that uh, uh, Chicago police goes to when they've got a supernatural problem. Uh, because he's the one who knows how to handle things and what to do about it. I mean, it's sort of their job to prove that everything was actually old man Witherspoon in a rubber mask. But uh, uh, but Harry Dresden knows that the, 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 the things are, that are out there are real, and the police know that they're real, and they have to deal with them. And it's right now you're, you've released 15 books so far, and you're working on the 16th? Uh uh 16 books if you count the two collections of short stories in the Dresden Files. And, uh, okay. Uh, or, or no, wait, 17 if you count those two. Uh, and then 15 of the case books, and I'm working on number 16 right now. And you've said previously that it's going to be a 20-book series. Do those two short books count against that 20-book nah, uh, count? Nah, those just happen because I get really excited when people start talking to me about their anthology ideas, and I'm very bad at saying no. So uh, I have all these short stories uh, you know, in, in the Dresden Files that I wanted to use and be connected to the main storyline. But... Uh, um, a lot of my fans are like students and so on, and they can't really afford to go out and buy, you know, 12 different anthologies to get all the short stories. So I, I wanted to collect them in one place so you could buy one book and get, all, get you know, the Dresden Files stuff if you want to. A sort of short story omnibus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The, 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 and I don't know if I'll write any more. I, I always say, nope, this is my last short story. And then somebody comes up with an anthology idea and I'm like, that's awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> um, uh, so who knows? There might be more someday. So what are some of the challenges of, of writing a series that's been going for like 20 years? Uh, the biggest challenge is the fact that it is the writing process itself. Uh, the writing process itself means that, uh, you know, you, you write a book and you write the rough draft and then you go over and then you, you clean it up a bit and then you show it to beta readers and you get their feedback and clean it up a bit. And then the editor gets it and gets feedback and you, and you, you take care of that. And then the copy editor and the line editor and the proofs come in. And by the time the book is done, um, you've seen between eight and 11 slightly different versions of the same story. Um, if you're only doing that in like a trilogy, that's one thing. But, but you know, as, as those possibilities keep expanding, you know, eight to 11 slightly different versions of 15 different books is a lot of things to keep track of. And uh, I don't always know which things actually made it into the final story. I occasionally forget because I don't really have a memory of the books as the reader experiences it. Cause the reader just gets one line. They get, they, they get canon. They're following one universe. Um, I, I've actually got, I'm actually tracking like this cloud of alternate universes that could have happened and didn't uh, uh, as well as the ones that actually did happen. And, and they're all interwoven and overlapped. It's very messy in my head. So it, whose job is that to make sure that it actually follows the proper storyline? Like your editor? <laughs> Are you kidding? It's my job. They're my books. Well, yeah, um, I, I know that, but like, you know, if you like pretend you get confused and you like character X did this and then character B uh, does that same thing in the next book, you know, would your editor catch that? Um, editor might or might not. 
Um, they're generally focused on one book and they keep track of so many different stories that it's not, I mean, their, their situation is even worse than mine. Um, what, what I do mostly is, is beta readers. I've got beta readers who, um, are a little enthusiastic about the series. I mean, they pick out like every detail. Um, so that's a big help. And then, and, and when I'm, when I'm actually writing and working, I, I'll just go use the fan Wikipedia when I need to remember something. You'd all be writing along in a chapter and be like, man, w- wait, how many kids do the Carpenters have? I can't remember. There's so many. And then I'll, I'll go and, and look on the fan Wikipedia and be like, ah, okay, yeah, okay. There's, the, there's this many kids. Go. And like, I couldn't tell you how many kids there are right now. Six? I, I'm not sure. There, there's a bunch of kids, though. And, and if I need to know, I'll look on the fan Wikipedia. Man, that's, that's, a, that's such a great tool to have. Uh, and, you know, you – so it sounds like you have, like, set up this – kind of like direct uh what's the word i'm thinking not like a street team but i mean you have your beta readers which really helps with like evangelizing the series and everything yeah i, uh, I kind of call it the asylum i mean really because there are people who are like crazy good at things or or just crazy some of them um uh, <laughs> uh i mean honestly i mean it's my job to i mean when i'm writing at the end of every chapter i mean what i'm thinking at the end of the chapter is how do i cliffhang this so that the asylum gets upset at me you know, I, and I know I've done my job when I post the chapter and their, their comments on the chapter are all, are all like, like gifts of people flipping tables. <laughs> Man, and, and did this it, it like exist before social media? Like, were you doing this from day one or I mean, you had to build a fan base first, right? Um, well, I, I had some friends that were helping me out when I was getting started. Uh, they were mainly people that I mushed with back in the days of, of mushes in the, in the nineties. Um, uh, which were text-based online uh, role-playing games, more or less. I was going to say, I don't, I'm unfamiliar with mushing. What uh, uh, yeah. is? Can, can you describe it for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, you'll you'll you log into a mush, you log into your character, and your character exists as a as a, a virtual object in the mush. Um, it's it's all text-based stuff, though, kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book while you're experiencing it. You know, like, like, so like you'll walk into a room and you'll get a description of the room and a list of all the exits and a list of objects in the room that will all have their own descriptions. And, and there's all these different text commands that you can use to interact with the objects. Think, think, uh, uh, play an early Zork only multiplayer. It's like a text-based, uh, D and D. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, the, the big one I played was called Amber Mush. It used the Amber Diceless role-playing system. Uh, there was an awful lot of, of really cool, creative people who were involved in Amber Mush who are now authors, a lot of them. Uh, uh, you know, when they say you got to write a million words of junk before you start writing good stuff, I, I wrote at least 850,000 of those words while mushing. So, And there, there's uh, actually, Kyle, and for all of our listeners, there's a great New York Times article all about this, you know, who some of these other authors were or are uh, and kind of how this like helped you transition to becoming a full-time writer. So do you want to kind of like fill us in on that part of your life, you know, before you had published anything, like what were you doing? Um, let's see. Uh, let me think. I, when I, when I wrote my first book, um, I was 19, uh, uh, and I wrote it in the summer, in the summer between, uh, my first and second years of year of college. Um, uh, I was also, I was working a bunch of, 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 of part-time jobs at the time. I was working as many as four part-time jobs and going to school. Um, because, uh, I was also a dad at that point. I mean, I was a dad before I turned 20. And, and, uh, so there was, there was a lot of work to be done, but I, I wanted to be a writer. Um, by the time I actually broke in, I'd actually gotten a pretty good job. I was working, um, it at an internet company, uh, kind of a local internet provider to Oklahoma called, called telepath internet. And, uh, they liked me and they trusted me. So I was their 10 PM to 6 AM guy. 
uh, they liked me because <laughs> I wasn't really a super good programmer, but I was just good enough to keep things limping along until the real guys got in at six without calling anybody out of bed at three in the morning. So uh, they, they appreciated that. It's a good skill set. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. So it's, and you know, there we we've talked with, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Andy Weir and Colin Barrett, and I've heard interviews of George Saunders and you know a million other writers who were kind of taking the downtime at these office jobs that they had in order to knock out a couple sentences or five hundred words or something. Were you doing that, or were you were you? You know, doing this exclusively on your own time, like before breakfast or something. No, no. Uh, because, I mean, the great thing about, about working there at night was is by, by midnight or so, most of the calls had dropped off. Um, uh, and the only people who would call you like after then were either the guys who were like, I just need to know your DNS numbers and you give it to them and we're done. Or they were the people who should have called you at like seven in the evening, but they kept trying to fix the problem until four in the morning. And, and now it's screwed up beyond repair. You know, so... <laughs> so on a lucky night yeah. on a lucky night i wouldn't get one of those guys and uh um uh and i would just spend my time uh writing um i wrote the first two books of the dresden files and the first book of alara on that job wow and were you able to just sell those things like you got an agent and the agent really liked it or or how does it really work um well, it, how it really worked was I, I was uh, at the uni University of Oklahoma School of Professional Writing, and De Deborah Chester was the was the teacher there, and she'd been trying to teach me how to be a good writer for a number of years, uh, uh, and I'd been fighting her every step of the way because, you know, I had a bachelor's degree in English literature with an emphasis <laughs> with an emphasis on creative writing, whereas she had merely published forty novels. Um, so, <laughs> but, you know, I thought I knew a whole bunch and, uh, and I kept trying to prove her wrong. And so one semester I, I decided, okay, I am going to prove her wrong this semester. And it was a brilliant plan. Uh, my, my means to prove her wrong was I was going to do everything she told me to do. I was going to be her good little writing monkey. I was going to fill out all her little forms and her little worksheets and do her little outlines. And then she would see what horrible cookie cutter pablum crap emerged from that kind of process. And uh, so I wrote the first book of the Dresden Files. <laughs> which you know which showed her completely um <laughs> but i remember the, the the first day i brought the first couple of chapters in and she read them and she was a tough teacher i mean she did not believe in pulling punches for her students uh she you know her her when people would say hey you're kind of being harsh on this criticism she's like yeah you need me to be harsh on this criticism in the professional world you won't get this they'll just be quiet and ignore you you know you need to know what you're doing wrong so that you can break in and, and, and this is me doing it. Um, and so, you know, she had, she had uh, critiqued me uh, to a degree that ha had included rolling up the chapters in her hand, leaning across the desk, hitting me on the head with them and saying, what were you thinking? She was that kind of teacher. <laughs> um, but she got done with the first couple chapters of uh, the first Dresden Files book, uh, which was called Semi-Auto Magic at the time. And, uh, uh, she read, and, and she read them and she said, well, you did it. I said, What? This is, this is the first time I'd heard something particularly positive. You know, she says, you did it. And she says, I do not know if this will be the first thing you sell, but it is of professional quality. You will be able to sell it. Um, now, uh, uh, come back in next week and uh, show me the rest of it and show me an outline for the rest of it. And, uh, uh, you know, she meant an outline for the rest of the book. <laughs> but I was so excited. I came back in the next week with an outline for a 20 book series with a big three, a big old doorstop trilogy capstone to finish the whole thing off. 
And, uh, and I, and I showed it to her. I babbled about it for 20 minutes. I could still remember the expression on her face. You know, she was trying to be patient. She didn't want to, she didn't want to throw off my groove because she'd finally gotten me on board with her and had me showing enthusiasm. Uh, uh, but the look on her face was just like, okay, Wiley coyote, you just run off that cliff. Uh, because, <laughs> because there's just no way in hell I was going to sell a 20 book series to a publisher, you know, and she knew that, uh, uh, but she didn't tell me that. And so as a result, I, I just, I never looked down. I just kept going and sold it. Um, really, I'm I, honestly, I'm not all that to clarify though. You sold one book or you sold 20. I sold the first three. Uh, I, I mean, I sold them okay. a three book trilogy and, uh, and then after, after that, it just kept going I and mean, the series kind of took off on its own. The, the public, the, the, well, I mean, I the editors just sort of looked at it like, how is the series just going? I don't know, but it is. <laughs> That's a moment that I want to talk a little bit more about because I, I love the, the idea of you walking into this teacher who's finally got you on board and then you show up with a 20 book series and she knows deep down that, that when you walk into that room with a publisher and you say 20 book series, everybody's going to look at you like you're nuts. So can you walk us through what that, what those initial meetings that you had were like, where you actually you're walking out into the air like Wiley Coyote and you just happen to find the ground forming underneath you? Um, no, man. I mean, there weren't really a whole lot of meetings or anything. Uh, uh, I mean, my teacher read it and she said, and you know, her advice to me after I gave her the outline was, well, I think if you can sell a 20 book series, you should be doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I did not sense the irony at that time. I was, I'm I'm, a little bit dense. Uh, but, um, but after that, I mean, she gave me a letter of introduction to her editor at Ace, Ginger Buchanan, and I was, wow. I, and I thought, oh, it's over. This is it. It's gonna, it's, I'm, and my career is taking off. Nah, nah. Ginger Buchanan had that book for like two and a half years, and I, and and I, I don't think she ever actually read it before I sold it to somebody else. Uh, uh, although she did congratulate me, um, and she, and she is a real sweetheart. She's, she was a great professional. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, it just sat and sat and sat and nothing happened and nothing happened and nothing happened. And, and I mean, you know how discouraging that is. As, as a young writer, it's just crushing. Um, so I talked to a friend of mine who had been in the professional music business and had done fairly well. And, uh, and her advice to me was, hey, you know what? If you really want to get things moving forward, you need to get out and like meet people and talk to people and, and have them see your face. You know, if you're just this faceless, uh, if all you are is, is, a, is a faceless stack of paper, you know, you're never going to be looked at as anything different than all the other faceless stacks of paper. You need to you need to do something to, to break the tie. You know, you need to get out there and, and, and take action. And I was like, OK. And so I started going to places where I would actually meet editors and agents and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, I would at one point I, I actually had to uh, sneak past cl- literal Klingon security uh, uh, to sneak into a coffee clutch that had been full when I arrived at the convention. And I thought that was unfair. So I snuck into it instead. Uh, one of the poor, <laughs> one of the poor guys, one of the poor guys who had actually signed up for it showed up late and, and he comes rushing in like five oh, minutes no. late and, 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 and comes to the table and all the chairs are full and he, and, and there's just this huge crestfallen look on his face. He's like, Oh no, Oh no, I didn't mean to be late. And, and, and I kind of looked around, I kind of, kind of got real tense at the table and looked around and then I was like, yeah, but it's not a big deal. Is it guys? We can just pull up another chair. We can make some room, right? Everybody's like, yeah, right. We can do that. And I'm like, oh, good. I don't, I don't have to feel awful now. Um, oh, man. That's so great. And, and I mean, you are Harry Dresden. It's very clear. Um, but uh, no, I mean, this is really fantastic because I, I do think that oftentimes with a lot of the writers that we get on the show, like they don't talk about how important it is to have, you know, in-person meetings. And I think that 
this actually like falls into like where we are today and as a society where you know it really is it is possible to just exist as a personality on the internet and get published and do your your thing i have editors that i've worked with that i've never met in person but it's also always the first thing i ever got published was because i was sitting at a coffee shop with an editor and like i just had a riff on uh, I, I'm embarrassed to say, but the overuse of exclamation marks in emails. And, uh, you know, t- after 10 minutes of me complaining about that, she just looked at me and asked me to write a story about it. And that was the first thing that I was ever paid to write. Nice. So, I mean, there's definitely, yeah. And there's something to be said about actually like getting, you know, in front of people having face-to-face meetings and, and not existing entirely like online or, uh, you know, in whatever industry you're in. So, right. so, I mean, I'm glad to hear that it worked for you. Well, Jim, was, was there a specific moment like that for you that broke the tie? Um, I went to a, a convention, I think it was the uh, Southeast Missouri Writers Guild uh, Writing Conference, I, I believe is what it was. And Laurel Hamilton was going to be there. And I, and I had been trying to secure a, a, a spot with Laurel's agent for a while because she was writing stuff that was sort of similar to mine. And I thought maybe that, that made sense. Uh, so I had sent some things in and, and, had, been, and had been rejected and, and to various agents. But there were going to be several of them. And Laurel was going to be at this convention. So I showed up to the convention and I, I had been a member of a, of a fan email list uh, uh, for Laurel's work. And so I brought a bunch of questions from fans and just asked Laurel if I could have 10 or 15 minutes of her time to, to send, you know, to pose these questions to her. And she said, sure. And so then we were kind of standing around at the mixer and all these people were coming up to Laurel to talk to her. And they were all talking about her, her books and her characters and stories. And I could just see her eyes glazing over. Um, because uh, I mean, everybody was just so. Uh, I mean, it was it was a bunch of of, of fans, and you know how, you know how we fans are. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, my God, you should have seen me when I got in the same room with Stan Lee. I fell to pieces. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, uh, but but so I walked up to Laurel and I was like, I was like, Hey, Laurel, do you do you like Buffy the Vampire Slayer? And she's like, I love Buffy. And we, so we started talking about Buffy. And I said, Do you like Babylon Five? And she's like, Oh, it's such a well written show. I love Babylon Five. And so we talked about that for a while. And, uh, uh, and, and just sort of kind of had this human conversation with her, uh, 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 which seemed very strange to me because she was, she was a famous writer and all, and I was just this guy. And, um, the next day, uh, uh, I was sort of standing around at the convention, bumping into walls and Laurel says, Hey Jim, do you want to go to a bunch of us are going to lunch? Do you want to go with us? And I'm like, I eat lunch. And so, you know, so we, we went to lunch <laughs> and, and I found myself sitting there with, with Laurel Hamilton and several other writers and uh, uh and her agent and 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 two other agents and an editor and, and and i didn't know what else to do but it had worked so well the night before i was like hey do you guys like buffy and they all like buffy i'm like <laughs> you like babylon five and yes they did all like babylon five and we started talking about that and by the end of the by the end of that convention not only had laurel's agent offered to represent me but but the agent that i'm working with now jennifer jackson had offered to represent me too and I, re- I remember having to turn Jennifer down because because Risha had already made the offer, and of course I'd accept it instantly. And uh, I mean, well, come on, an agent made an offer. Good lord! Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah uh, of course. Uh, and and but I was sitting there talking to Jen afterwards, and I was like, Jen, you know, I I, I sent stuff this same material to you like two weeks ago. She says, I know. And I said, you rejected me. She says, I know. She and I said. You, you sent me back a rejection letter. It wasn't even an original letter. It was a, it was a copy of a letter and it was crooked. 
She says, yeah, we got a new, we got a new guy in the office. He's still figuring things out. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, so why are you offering to represent me now? And she says, well, you know, but when you sent that stuff in before, I didn't know that you played the Amber Diceless role-playing game. And, and, and now I do. And there's so few people who play that. And now we've got this connection and that that's what makes a difference. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, I, I sort of showed up and, and uh, 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 said the, what Rudyard Kipling would call the master words of the jungle. You know, the master words of the jungle in the jungle story was, was we're of the same tribe, is more or less. It was, the, the, the actual quote was, we be of one blood. And, uh, uh, and that's kind of what I did. I showed up and, and talked to other nerds who like Buffy and Babylon 5. And, and they're like, yeah, okay, this guy, this guy belongs to the tribe. Somebody should, should look out for him. So all that time spent uh, playing Amber Mush. Yeah, it totally paid actually off. Actually, oh really God. did pay off. I had no idea it was an investment. I thought I was just trying to, to escape everything. <laughs> and you ended up finding your people. Uh, yeah, yeah, it worked out. Has social media, you're someone with uh, three book series in total, and I think two of them are still running because Codex Alera, you wrapped up, Right. Right. Uh, so ha- has social media and the prevalence of it lately affected the way that you build storylines for your books uh, now that you can sort of see in real time people trying to guess what's going to happen or people trying to parse out the motivations of characters as you publish them? No, not really. Um, uh, I mean, I kind of I kind of got all this stuff planned out earlier and it's it's working so well, I'm a little superstitious about trying to fix it. Um, so, I mean, I enjoy occasionally seeing the, the fan crack theories. Uh, 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 and I, I, and all I can do is think to myself, oh my gosh, how did this person reach this conclusion? <laughs> uh, and other, but other times, I mean, fans will come up with stuff and I'll be like, wow, that's really damn smart. I wish I was that smart. Um, uh, but I'm not always. Um, but I think the real thing that social media does is it lets you connect to the readers as like a person. You know, when the reader makes some comment on Twitter and you go, oh man, that's a really insightful comment. I like that. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that, 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 that build suddenly you've got, I mean, and, and a reader will be like, oh my gosh, Jim Butcher responded to my thing. And I'll be like, it, it, and for me, it's like, well, yeah, I responded to your thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd. You know, I'm, I'm like, I'm a nerd like other nerds. It's, it's, it's kind of what I do. Uh, but, but it's like real important to them. And when stuff like that happens, um, uh, you know, you've got a reader that's going to be supporting your work for, for life and probably buying it as, as gifts for his friends. I mean, it's super important. Uh, I think what social media has really done is it has let you connect to your patrons. Um, artists have always had to have patrons to be able to do their stuff. And, and you know, my patrons just happen to be this huge, you know, crowdsourced uh, uh, batch of nerds who, who, who like what I write. Um, that, it, that's a really cool idea that you look at your, your reading public as sort of a one collective patron. Oh my God, yeah, they have to be. Because, you know, we live in a world where you don't have to pay for books anymore if you don't want to. I mean, it is easier to go out and, and download illegally a book than it is to, to go buy it. I mean, it's, it's, it's cheaper and faster to just go get it for free than to actually take the time and spend money to get it. Man, talk about you know it being an uphill work for the reader. Uh, so when people actually spend their money on my stuff, yeah, heck yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I've also read that, so that there is a, a secondary idea that I think was buried in uh, what Jeff was talking about. I want to tie it back to your beta readers, because I've read that you release your your books to them chapter by chapter. One at right? a time. Which I, I understand why you call them the asylum. That would drive me insane. But there's another author who does something similar, but instead of beta readers, he just releases it to 
the internet. Uh, have you have you heard of Hugh Howie? And no, I haven't. Uh, and Jeff, I think you're more familiar with the story than I am, but I'm pretty sure he released uh, what became eventually a series of three novels, chapter by chapter, to the internet. And I I'm pretty sure he incorporated uh, you know commenter feedback while he did it, but he managed to turn what essentially was a serialized blog into three very successful novels that he self-published. Yeah, no reason you can't. I mean, it's the difference between network television going week by week and Netflix giving it to you all at once. Yeah. So have you ever considered, I mean, now that it seems like you've built a pretty solid process of doing this, incorporating feedback and then taking it through a publisher, but has that idea ever crossed your mind that you'd write something more serialized uh, to be released in real time to the wider public? Nah, never really thought about it that way. Uh, um, I mean, my, my job is to my job is to write books. I mean, I've been I've been working my entire adult life to learn how to write novels really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. uh, doing the serialized stuff, I, I don't think I would be as good at it. That sounds more like writing a bunch of short stories. Um, and while short stories are, are epically good for you as a writer, I just I hate them. I hate short stories. They're the worst. Short stories are the worst. You have to do everything in a short story that you do in a novel. But you got to do it inside 5,000 words. It's like trying to have a knife fight in a phone booth. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Now, now I, that I, said, I, they're I, really good for you because you do have to do everything that you do in a novel. It's just a lot harder. Mm-hmm. It's all compact. And I mean, it's great for as a reader because you get to knock out a story in 20 minutes or half an hour as opposed to like spending like a week or a day with it or something. Um, that said, I, I still do read way more novels than I do short stories. Um, Jim, I have like 10 questions I want to ask you, but I know that we're on uh, kind of a time budget. Okay. So I want to uh, do like kind of a mini lightning round. Um, so my first question is uh, the Dresden Files TV show. Okay. Would you have rather it come out today or uh, are you happy with what happened back in 06? Oh, what kind of idiot would I have to be to be unhappy with what happened in 06? I mean, even though the show, I mean, even though the show only was out for a season, um, uh, it still, I mean, it garnered me such an enormous audience. Uh, uh, and I mean, it must have gotten me six or seven years of audience growth in over the course of a spring. Uh, uh, plus, yeah. I got to meet Stan Lee. Plus, <laughs> I got to have dinner with, with the guy who played Harry Dresden. Uh, uh, the producer of the Dresden Files, David Howe, who also produced Battlestar Galactica, so also at dinner were the guy that played was so the cool. guy that played Gaius Baltar and Six, and those three guys were all British, and they immediately started talking football, and Six's eyes just glazed over. So I just had to man up and spend the evening chatting with her about pets. It was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> see, this is great. You're you're definitely like an optimist, which is really refreshing. Uh, is there any hopes of, of uh, like putting it back out on one of the streaming services? Um, we'll have to see. There's interest. Uh, uh, there's there's actually there's there's some there's some interest right now, and there's some uh, bidding happening right now, and we'll see what happens with it. Um, oh great. man! Well, well I mean, congrats. That's well, you can't congrats me. I mean, it's Hollywood. Um, uh, yeah. Hollywood. I mean, the way Hollywood works is nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. Everything happens all at once. So, I mean, it, it, it's all talk until the check clears. I mean, it's, even getting the check is not good enough. It's all talk until the check is cleared. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, what are your favorite books on Roman history? Oh, um, 
Oh, I, I, I don't have them. I, mean, I don't have a bunch of them here with me because uh, I've just moved in my most of my library is still back at home. So I'm going to try and dig into my memory. Um, I've uh, Livy and Plutarch, um, the uh, Caesar's books. Uh, I like I like Marcus Aurelius uh, and his and his writings. Um, it's stuff written by Romans mostly. I mean, w- when it comes to Roman history, I, I mostly go to the kids section of the library and pick up Roman history books there because you know they kind of deal with the broader stuff uh, in a, in a little bit more detail. Uh, and they don't start mixing in, uh, uh, you know, psychology and stuff like that, or trying to trying to align Roman history with modern politics or anything like that. They just kind of tell you what happened. Uh, and then there's like a D and D source book for if you ever really wanted to to run a a Rome campaign in D and D that I've also that they did their <laughs> research well, and I've also used that. That Kyle, we should do that. That sounds fun. Uh, I, that, that sounds like my wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what and Jim, you're welcome to to join us if you'd like. Okay. Uh, uh, you wrote Spider-Man and Doctor Strange for Marvel. What was that like? Um, a ton of fun, but uh, I realized part I realized partway into the story that I needed uh, uh, I needed more story. I had to expand the story a little bit uh, in order to to get to a, a decent a word count for for the book. And uh, and so I said, okay, well, I'm gonna have to change this and this and this. And my editor's like, you can't do that. I'm like, why not? Well, it's got to go by the committee. It's got to go by everybody at Marvel and and. You know, they can't have a meeting for another two months and you've got to have the book done by next week. And I'm like, oh, oh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And, and I stopped and I tried to think about how I would advise a, a, a new writer if it was a new writer having this problem. And I couldn't come up with anything. So I'm like, OK, we'll change the genre. What if this was a romance writer who had this problem and, and, and you, you were advising them? What, what advice would you give them? And I stopped and thought about it and went, you know what? I just tell them to write more orgasms is what I would do. And. <laughs> and because that's appropriate to the genre and the fans will like it. And, uh, and so then I thought, okay, well, how do I translate that to Marvel? Okay. Instead of more orgasms, I write more kapow. And so I just added in some more fight scenes, you know, some more set pieces, uh, that were fight scenes between Spider-Man and these enemies that he was dealing with. And it was fun. Did any of your writing, like, uh, were you able to recognize any of your writing on the big screen during any of the Marvel movies? Um, so, I don't know. I, I don't want to say I recognize my writing, but um, uh, uh, I do want to say that when I went and saw Homecoming, when I got to the end of Spider-Man Homecoming, I looked at that and I went, I could not have beaten up or humiliated Peter Parker anymore if I'd written that myself. That was work well done. <laughs> you know, I just loved yeah. it. I mean, down to the little details that, that, that a lot of people didn't notice. Like, if you notice Peter's phone at the beginning, it's fine. And then as it goes through the movie, it just gets more and more cracked up until he can barely read it at the end. You know, but he's still got his <laughs> Avengers phone, but the screen is, is just completely screwed up. He can't even read it anymore. And I love that. You know, it's just those were all the little details that, that, that Peter Parker got yeah. hit with that I just adored. It, it is the little things. Uh, noir versus fantasy versus steampunk. Uh, you have to pick one for the rest of your life. Which would it be? Uh, fantasy. Yeah, hands down. Swords and Horses Fantasy, no question. Okay, noted. Uh, I'm watching um, Game of Thrones with my girlfriend. She's never seen it before, so it's it's very fun. Uh, and last question until we get to the story is, uh, how do you write humor on the page as opposed to like speaking it to a friend? When you're writing, on the, when you're writing it on the page, uh, essentially... The, the real thing, when you're with a friend, you can both be funny. When you're writing it on the page, you can't have lots of people be funny. You've got to have one wise ass. Um, it, you, when you're, when you're create, trying to create uh, this virtual image in people's mind, and, and that's what 
that's what stories are. They're virtual reality. They're the original virtual reality. Uh, and when you're trying to create that image in the mind, in someone else's mind, you've got to make sure that the images come across real clear. And one of the ways you do that is that, you know, characters and people have slightly exaggerated personality traits as opposed to what you would see elsewhere. Um, so when, when, when you're writing humor on, on uh, you know, on the page, you've really got to make sure that you've got one guy who's being funny and one guy who's being the straight man or, or, or who's being the heel. Uh, Harry Dresden winds up being the heel like every time Bob the, the, the Skull is on stage uh, because that's kind of Bob's defining thing is he's busy being funny. Uh, uh, so Dresden gets humiliated a lot and he's a straight guy. Uh, uh, but then, you know, when it's, when it's Murphy that's on stage, Murphy's the straight guy and Dresden's the one who's lipping off about everything and taking nothing seriously. Uh, uh, so, I mean, that's something that you, when you're, when you're with, when you're with kind of an ensemble of other people and there's, there's lots of creativity going into it, then you can have a lot of funny people at the same time. Uh, when you're doing it by yourself on the stage, you've got to make sure you've got that spotlight real clear for the reader so that they know uh, so that they can picture in their head very easily what's happening on that page. That's the whole, that's the whole point of the exercises is, is to create that picture in the reader's head. Yeah. I, uh, I kind of noticed that as I was reading through briefcases, which by the way is available now, everybody should check it out. It's a nice introduction to the Dresden files. If you haven't read it before, uh, it's a collection of short stories that were published in all of these different anthologies. Jim was speaking about it before. Um, and everybody should pick it up. I, I had a lot of fun, especially with the Bigfoot piece uh, that was in there. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so, Jim, we uh, ask all of our guests on the show to talk about one story that they always struggle to tell, uh, and that means different things to everybody that's been on the show. So I want to kind of leave that broad and open to you, but we were hoping that you might be able to share uh, one of those with us. Uh, it's always the story I'm working on right now. Um, uh, um, whatever I'm doing at the moment, every time I start a book, when I start planning it out, I try and plan out a book that is slightly beyond what I am comfortable writing, you know, that I think is slightly beyond the reach of my current abilities, um, uh, to tell the story well. And sometimes that works out really, really well, like it did in changes. And sometimes it doesn't work out as well, like it, like ghost story. Um, I don't think that book came out nearly as well as, as, as I, as it, as I had it in my head, because I wasn't quite able to, to get to that point and write it as well as it could have been written yet. Uh, but that's the only way you grow as a writer is you've got to try and write those stories that you're not sure you can do. Um, you know, you've got to try and, and, and you've got to try and, and make sure that your, 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 your reach exceeds your grasp. You know, you gotta, you gotta keep growing. And the only way to do that is to try and fail. Um, uh, failure is, is the most important thing that you can have as a writer because failure teaches you lessons. Uh, uh, if you just go out and get things easy, it doesn't teach you nothing. Failure is what makes you a better writer. So, you know, if, if you're a writer and you feel like you failed at writing, good. That's the right direction. You should keep trying to fail, only fail better next time. <laughs> so when you're in the moment writing a story that is challenging you and you find yourself at a, a point where you have to stop and think about what comes next, how do you tackle this challenge? The way that my writing process is kind of backwards because um, I, I don't usually like write out and then rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Um, when I'm sitting down to write, I always sit down to write a chapter. This is going to be a chapter between 1,500 and 3,000 words probably uh, uh, that I want to write today. And before I can write that, I have to stop and, and be able to picture how that chapter plays out in my head. Sometimes that takes a long time. Um, sometimes it takes a couple of days for me to figure out exactly how I'm going to lay out the chapter so that it works and does everything I need it to do. Um, 
Uh, but by the time I sit down to actually write it, I've already got it all straightened out in my head and it just sort of flies off my fingers. Um, at least when I'm smart and I, and I, and I, and I, and I get it all, all lined up before I start writing. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's at that point, the, the, the actual process of getting it on the page is easy. Uh, but it's something I've been doing for so long. I don't even think about it anymore. So when I'm done with this interview today, I've got some errands to run. I'll be going out running the interview and thinking about the chapter I need to write tomorrow morning. Uh, and I'll be and I'll think to myself, okay, which characters need to show up? Who needs to be there? Who's, who's the opposition? Uh, you know, how is this going to make things worse for Harry today? You know, that's the chapter that, <laughs> that, that I have to plan out. And, and that's happening in my head all the time when I'm doing things. It's so annoying to the people around me because I'll be in the middle of a conversation and then just break off and stare, you know, into the, into the, into the middle distance, you know? Uh, uh, and, and, for, and people are like, Jim, Jim, are you okay? And the folks who, who know me will be like, no, no, he's writing. Give him a second. And then I'll come back and then I'll be like, oh God, that horrible thing is going to happen to that character. The, the, the readers are going to hate me. Sorry, I'm back. What happened? You know? <laughs> and uh, uh, that's, that's kind of how I roll. Is there, are there ever any moments where you get about halfway or three quarters of the way into a chapter and you have to throw it out or start again? Um, occasionally. I, I really hate doing that. Um, and even when I do do that, I'll, I'll, any of the material that I cut uh, is, is saved in a save file somewhere else. And I'll go back through and look and see if I can reuse any of it because I worked to create that already, darn it. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, there's times where you've got to where where you realize you've taken a you you should have taken a left turn at Albuquerque and and you know you've got to go back and fix things, um, and and that's that that's that's painful. That's awful to do as a writer, but you got to do it. Cool. Well, I think that is uh, you know really fantastic advice, and uh, that's the one thing that like I kind of. I should have expected, but I didn't when we first launched the show is just all the really fantastic advice that all of the writers are able to give our listeners. Uh, so Jim, we wanted to thank you for uh, providing us with your time and your insight. Uh, and I encourage everybody to follow Jim on social media and uh, do you have an email newsletter or anything they can subscribe to? Uh, if you come to my webpage, uh, yeah, there is something that you can sign up for. Uh, uh, there's a link on, at uh, www.jim-butcher.com or at uh, www.jimbutcheronline.com. Great. Thank you so much for your time. This was a real pleasure. Hey, no problem, guys. Take care. Yeah, Tim, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. This has been an episode of Writers Who Don't Write. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you can find our interview with Jim Butcher and all of our other interviews uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, we have like 65 of these things at this point. So if you enjoyed this, I really encourage you to go and check out our backlist and see if there's anything else that might be up your alley. Uh, we try really hard to get like a, a really big offering of uh, different interviews. So we have something for everybody, I hope at least. And if not, uh, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at www.pod and recommend an author that you would like to hear about. Uh, you can find Jim online at jim-butcher.com. You can find books by Jim Butcher wherever books are sold. His latest is called Briefcases. It's a collection of short stories from Harry Dresden. Uh, it's a really nice way to get introduced to the series. Uh, 
friend of the show, Alana Jolie Abbott, actually wrote a big introduction to the Dresden Files series for Den of Geek last week. So that is also a nice introduction if you want to check that out. Uh, we want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library, who wrote the music at the top and the bottom of the hour, and Ben Sound, who wrote the music that you heard right in the middle of the show. Uh, we really appreciate all of the time that you spend with us. Uh, we would love it even more if you told a friend about the show. Uh, and, you know, you guys have been listening a lot the last couple months, so keep it up. It's really encouraging to see. We've been doing this for you know, two and a half years at this point, and we hope to do it for another 20. Uh, we just need a little bit more encouragement to keep going. So thank you so much. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.